everyone. My name is Lynette Mara. I am your host. Spoiler alert, we're going to have a co-host really soon. Ahem, <gasps> ahem. I'm really excited to interview Alexis Crone. Uh, Alexis works with us here at the Unconscious Bias Project, blogging, helping develop workshops, doing data analysis. She comes to us with 12 years of experience in education as a middle school teacher and as the middle school diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator at her former school. She also volunteered with the Yes on Three campaign to defend protections for transgender people in Massachusetts in 2018. In her free time, she's also a lit fire spinner, used to be the executive director for a twice annual community fire spinning retreat. Wow, Alexis, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited. This will be really fun. We know each other through our dear friend, Kat Adams, who is now Dr. Adams. Mm -hmm. And we met when I was really, you know, running UBP. I was really strapped for time and needed um, help with data analysis and facilitation. And as I understand it, you had just moved to the Bay Area from Boston, where Mm -hmm. you've been living for a really long time. How did you end up finding... 12 years. Okay. Yeah. That's a long time. How did you end up finding out about UEP? I mean, obviously cat probably, but I've never asked you. And I actually just realized I've never asked you, why did you want to join us? Yeah. So I had been working in education in middle school, teaching Latin for 12 years in a private school in Boston. And I had already been getting involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work there doing things like coordinating efforts for the middle school, being an advisor to some of the upper school clubs, which were centered around diversity, whether helping some of the students from the Students of Color Club to plan events or uh, helping edit essays by some of the queer students to revise the dress code, things like that. And advocating for diversity and inclusion efforts at the school through our faculty committee that we affectionately referred to as the agitators from the inside. (laughs) And so I was getting ready to move out here. And I was already friends with Kat from back in Boston, because Kat used to be in Boston. We were just hanging out having brunch, I believe. And we were talking about, you know, what do you want to do once you get out here to California? And I said, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is continuing to do DEI work. And she said, well, you know, I'm part of this thing. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's go. And so when I got out here, then I got involved. And the rest is history. Yeah. 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 I've always wondered, and I never asked, how come you got out of the education sector? You are a good teacher. I have watched your YouTube on, I think it was Latin grammar that you shared yeah, with zombie me. Latin. Yeah, zombie Latin. Is the um, YouTube channel. <laughs> Y'all should check it out. It's, it's pretty fun. It's fun. It was creative. I could tell you're really passionate about it. What uh, sort of moved you to come out to the Bay Area even and to to leave the the safety and comfort of long and you know very impactful history with the schools you were working with? The biggest thing is just that to get on a soapbox for a second, we mm-hmm. don't treat teachers awfully well in this country as a system, right? And that's not against mm-hmm. my old school. My old school is fantastic. I really loved being there. I was there for 12 years after all. 
but it is underpaid and underappreciated profession overall for the amount of work that we put in. Mm -hmm. So that was part of why leaving education. But the other reason was just to continue focusing on DEI efforts, because one of the things that I valued most about education was building relationships with my students, especially my students who I knew were not as supported by our society and really trying to advocate for them and help them advocate for themselves. Why I moved to California, part of it was, I usually point to three things overall. One of them, the better seasons. I have (laughs) a form of depression that is seasonally affected. Mm -hmm. And getting out of Boston where there was winter was important to me. Also, a lot of people I love are out here that I met through a really broad set of communities. And another big part was simply ease of being queer. One of the key aspects of my identity that we're going to talk about today is that I am transgender. So I was assigned male at birth and came out as a woman. Five years ago now, I came out to my family and friends. Four years since I came out to my school. And there is this ease in the Bay and knowing that in the average coffee shop, when I'm ordering coffee in the average restaurant, I'm not the first trans person that Mm. this clerk, this waiter has met. When I go in to do a event, I'm fairly certain that the people in that room know that they have met other trans people before. In Boston, that's just not guaranteed. When I came out at school, a lot of my coworkers told me directly, you're the first person that I know who's trans. Wow. Well, awesome for coming out. <laughs> not that like you need my, my validation for that at all, but you know, it's got to be hard to do and to do that in a professional space too. You've you know, shared that with your colleagues just now and that, um, you know, your students were, you know, with you in that transition. Mm -hmm. And then awesome on you to decide, you know what, my Boston, my love, like, bye. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I need a safer place. I need a more welcoming space. And I had no idea that could happen to people when they transition and they transition to their colleagues, that people would tell them, oh, you're the first person I know who's trans. How does that feel? Um, one of the things was always that people would say, you know, you're the first person that I know who's trans. And one of my immediate responses was always, I'm the first person that you know, that you know of being trans, just because you don't know, doesn't mean that you don't know them. Like that didn't bother me being told you're the first trans person I've met. (laughs) The thing that bothered me was how many people automatically defaulted to saying things like, oh my gosh, and your eyelashes are already so full or, oh, and you have great cheekbones or like, oh, your skin is so good. And that sort of stuff was Mm -hmm. much more of a bother. And that sort of stuff was much more of a microaggression that Mm -hmm. a lot of trans women put up with constantly and trans men to some degree as well. Mm -hmm. That all ties into the fact that our patriarchal system And the misogyny and discrimination embedded in it judges women and their qualification to be women based upon a certain set of heteronormative beauty standards. Mm -hmm. And so every time I got told, oh, you're transitioning, well, look at those cheekbones, those are great cheeks, I'd always think, you think you're complimenting me, but what you're really telling me is that 
in order to be a woman, I need to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that invalidates the many of my trans sisters who maybe don't have those qualities that fall into that standard heteronormative definition of beauty. It just backs up also, if they're looking at me like that, and that that qualifies whether or not I'm a woman, that's an affront to cis women as well, because it means that they're judging other cis women as well. And they're how good are they doing at being a woman? By how good are they doing at adhering to those beauty standards? Absolutely. Yes. Which is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> also, why, <laughs> why do we need like any sort of comment on physical appearance to have anything to do with being a woman? Like what? Exactly. <laughs> physical appearance, outward, inward, what we sound, what we act like, how we dress. Yeah. Everything up for grabs, if you will. Yeah. As opposed uh, to... Like one of my other friends out here in the Bay, Uh she is trans as well. And Mm -hmm. she has, to my knowledge, never undergone any hormonal treatments, has never undergone, to my knowledge, any sort of hair removal. She still has oftentimes stubble, Mm -hmm. like very, very noticeable stubble. And... Mm -hmm everyone in my community out here doesn't think twice about it just because she hasn't gone through those particular gates that cis heteronormativity has set up doesn't Mm -hmm. make her any less of a woman. Yeah. One of my closer peeps who did transition, my friend who was assigned a male at birth, she came out to her family. Her family was pretty supportive, like, okay, you know, great, you know, really, you know, glad that you found you found this and it seems important to you. So we'll support you. But, <laughs> you know, she she doesn't like wear dresses with her family mm-hmm. or shave or, you know, wear makeup or anything. They are still uh, misgendering her mm. uh, by pronouns. And I wonder, I don't know if it's sort of like, we, we've talked about it of like, is it because they don't understand that it doesn't have to outwardly look like their idea of, you know, how a woman is? Uh, she confided in me that um, she had a conversation with her parents and the dad in, in particular was like, well, if she, you know, she's not wearing any makeup yet, so I think I'll work on it some more when she does. It was like, oh. It's so brutal because it's like there are plenty of cis women who don't wear makeup and they're still mm-hmm. women. And mm-hmm. we allow cis women also to be tomboys. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes we don't allow that of trans women. There's an expect there's kind of this unwritten expectation mm. from the rest of society that if we want to prove to them that our identity is valid, then we have to go like all out high femme mm-hmm. woman. And, you know, the fact is, I still wear jeans and a t-shirt almost every day. (laughs) That didn't change. I'm still a jeans and t-shirt type gal. That general aesthetic didn't change. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of women out there, both cisgender and transgender, who just aren't into makeup. And that doesn't make any of them more or less a woman. On the flip side, right? 
any woman who chooses to wear makeup, no matter how much or how little, that is their choice. And no one's going to question that. Well, actually, no, they do. <laughs> yeah, plenty of people do. <laughs> so it's like, no one's going to question. No, they do. And there's, they really there's do. definitely expectations. I mean, here I am sitting as, you know, the executive director of Unconscious Bias Project. And I definitely always wear some makeup to any sort of client thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tame my wild curls and, you know, dress in what I consider to be like professional <laughs> wear that is this very specific, yeah. right? When it comes to what women are expected to wear. For the first year after I came out at school, mm-hmm. so I was out for three full school years at school. And for the first of those three years, I did not wear a blazer or pants to school even once for that first year. I only wore dresses for an entire year to school because I was so anxious about whether or not wearing a blazer and pants was going to cause people to look at my identity as not valid. Mm -hmm. Or like, oh, she changed her mind again or something. Yeah. Yeah. Women wear blazer and pants all the freaking time. <laughs> There's this hyper vigilance that came with my transition for me, where I was always trying to think, how do I get cis heteronormative culture to accept me and not challenge them too much on what it means to be a woman? Because it's already so challenging to accept me as a woman that trying to challenge their images of femininity at the same time is just another task that I oh, don't gosh. need to be worrying about. And speaking of tasks, we have to take a tiny break for a little announcement and we'll be right back. I have a juicy question to ask you about trans women in the podcast world when we return. Hey everyone, this is Seth. I use he, him pronouns and I'm one of the audio editors and volunteers here at UBP. The Unconscious Bias Project brings creative, accessible, evidence-based solutions for unintentional bias to academic, technological, governmental organizations, and beyond. We sustain a welcoming home for inquisitive and creative minds and encourage a growth mindset, working by the model 0% guilt, 100% empowerment. Please subscribe or follow our Facebook and Instagram for the latest in events and how you can learn more and be involved. Also, take a moment and check out our guest website and learn more. Look for that information in the description section of your podcast or on our website. Hey everyone, me again. The U.S. 2020 election day is soon. Complete your voter registration, find voting locations, and official ballot drop-off locations through the links in the description section of this podcast. Your voice is important. And we're back. Uh, We just talked about a little bit about your transition, expectations placed on women and trans women and sort of like the double or triple expectations that are placed on trans women to be extra super, in your words, high femme. 
So you and I talked briefly about this when we first started thinking about the idea of the podcast. And I remember you were so psyched about it. And I was like, great, Alexis, come co-host with me. And you were like, mm, hold on a second. <laughs> I was shocked because you said because of how people perceive your voice on the other side of the podcast, like our listeners concerned about misgendering or about being misgendered. So the big concern, right, was mm -hmm. I always tell my friends, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be the one who calls the pizza place. Because when I call people on the phone, just having to call insurance or the DMV or whatever it is, calling people on the phone carries this extra frustration of always having to identify yourself as trans. So many service workers are trained or expected to address the people they're talking to as sir or ma'am or miss or whatever it is. Uh -huh. And so they hear my voice and they default to addressing me as sir. In that moment, I have to figure out what is the way I'm going to address this. And that usually means at first trying to do it in the most subtle way possible and say, it's miss. And then almost always they don't pick up on it. And then you go, I'm a woman, please address me as mess. And it usually escalates to having to then on this phone call, when they serve me again, say, look, I'm transgender. Please address me as mess. Uh, I know my voice sounds male, but it's mess. Please address me as such. Uh, and depending on the length of the call and the mm -hmm. importance of the call, Sometimes I just grit my teeth and bear it because getting to that point where I'm telling them, look, I'm trans, you need to do this thing is such a emotional burden on top of already dealing with medical insurance or whatever it is that I'm dealing with. And so trying to have that on top Jeez. of it, it's just an extra frustration. And so oftentimes I'm just gritting my teeth and bearing it through the whole thing. And so that was my fear with the podcast was how do I properly, hopefully have listeners understand who I am. Mm -hmm. And that way, I'm not somehow misrepresented in their minds as to who I am. Yeah, that was really important to me because it's just a, it's such a, it's such a hurdle. And it's funny because I talked to my friends in real life. And they are often shocked that I get misgendered on phone calls because mm -hmm. they say to me, your voice is not that masculine. And I'm always like, I'm really curious about why you say that. And what it comes down to is when I'm interacting with people in person, there are so many other cues that people pick up on, whether it's how I'm dressed, whether it's how I move, whether it's the shape of my body, if depending on how much of that is visible through my clothing, depending mm -hmm. on who they just know I am. So there are all these visual reminders to go with mm. also the fact that I've had a lot of friends tell me that my cadence of speech was always much more feminine. Even wow. when I was still doing what I affectionately refer to as boy drag, <laughs> the cadence of my voice and the cadence of my conversation was still very feminine sounding to a lot of people. And so with all of that combined with the cadence, in person, people don't necessarily interpret my voice as masculine, but on the phone, where all of those other indicators just fall away, it's mm -hmm. much more pronounced that people just constantly are calling me, sir, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I can't imagine how, how painful that must be. I mean, just for something as trivial as ordering pizza or as like, you know, important but routine as like calling in a prescription or just anything like, I don't know, get help with the internet, you know, <laughs> like, wow, that, that, that sucks. So I think that brings us to one of the things that sort of centered the whole reason why we started these podcasts is um, our Together Against Bias campaign to try to bring um, awareness of the disparate effect that coronavirus pandemic is having on groups that were already suffering discrimination, racism, xenophobia, and inequities are just getting it so much worse. And, you know, we've seen in the news, you know, American Indians getting it worse, like health wise, and, you know, having more difficulties getting help. And you recently wrote an article that talked about all sorts of different groups, including queer folks, and how there there's several things that are much harder for them during the pandemic than other other people. For you, like, how has the pandemic and worsened inequities and or discrimination affected you personally? So the two biggest things are around healthcare and job availability. I'm part-time here with the Unconscious Bias Project, and I was working in event production as well through March. And just like how certain ethnicities and certain jobs are correlated because of how class and race are linked in this country. Likewise, there is a link between job availability and being queer in this country. We see time and time again that queer people have a harder time getting jobs, have a harder time keeping jobs, partly because of gender expectations. There are a lot of jobs where the expectation is that you are going to perform gender in a certain way while you're there. And that whether consciously or unconsciously, that will affect your rate of hire, that will affect your rate of promotion, that it will affect your rate of retention. The ways in which we are expected to show up to work may or may not increase our ability to cope there. And just like expectations around how people comport themselves with regards to other cultures, if they're from another culture, or if they're just not part of the dominant white culture. That means that on the whole, queer people occupy lower paying jobs, a lot of which were all in service and event industry. Hmm. Both of those industries got slammed hard by this pandemic. And so we saw disproportionately queer people losing their jobs at a higher rate than straight people. And for me, I felt that somewhat directly in that the event business that I was working for is just gone. It's just gone. And so I lost that revenue stream almost immediately. Literally two weeks before I had to be let go, my boss was talking to me about how do we pay you more and get you things that are more complicated that I know you can handle. And was talking to me, how fast can we promote you up this chain? Because oh you're amazing. Gosh. And literally less than two weeks later, I got an email saying, we're laying off everyone because we literally have no clients. And this is common that a lot of queer people were working in those service or event spaces. And on top of it, right, is for a lot of people who have privilege, they have families, they have inherited wealth that mm -hmm. will help them through hard times, 
but a lot of queer people have been cut off from those familial resources. So where a lot of people Mm. might be able to go home and stay with their family and consolidate their resources during times like this, queer people are on average less able to do that. I'm lucky enough that my family is absolutely amazing. If I needed to go home tomorrow Uh and live with family, Uh with, with blood family, I would have no problem doing that. Any yeah. of my blood family would take me in immediately. That's beautiful. But for a lot of people, that's just, for a lot of queer people, that's not true. They, mm-hmm. a lot of queer people have been utterly cut off from their families. Who They have families that they can't talk yeah. to, that they don't talk to, or they have family that will still talk to them, but won't acknowledge, if they're trans, that family might still talk to them, but won't acknowledge who they are. They might not accept their relationships as valid. So that means even if they moved in, that is a huge psychological toll to move back with folks who don't accept you. So we're in June, it's June 5th, and it's it's Pride Month, <laughs> uh, which is normally like just a huge, you know, in the Bay Area. It's one of the, it's one of the things that I loved moving to the Bay Area. I just felt joy seeing that, you know, gay men were like hand in hand, we're holding hands, you know, um, I could see drag queen, you know, going to get a coffee. I could, you know, like it was just, it's not like utopia, you know, just because you're queer and living in the Bay Area doesn't mean everything's roses, but it's just like, it, it's so much, I feel like it's palpable. It's sort of like a, the joy is in the air of just oh, yeah. people being. That's, it's one of my favorite things of living in the Bay Area is, is having so much activity and different, you know, facets of the, you know, LGBTQIA plus and so on queer spectrum are just everywhere. It's just an explosion of celebration, of weirdness, Mm -hmm. because there's also, you know, there's like the the S&M crews, there's the, there's the, oh gosh, I'm I'm losing it, but um, the sisters... The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? Yes, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I love them. I think they're so great. You know, there's there's like contests that always happens. There's the the um, dikes on bikes. There's, you know, there's just so many different things that happen during Pride Month um, that are really amazing. And yeah, you know, everybody's making sacrifices during the pandemic. But I, I have to imagine that that this is probably hitting the queer community, you know, hard to not be able to to be together. What are your your folks saying or how are people feeling on it? So one of the tough things about not being able to be together as the as the queer community is that for so many of us, we have built these alternative I loved the the way a particular First Nations, so Canadian queer theorist put it, Kim Tall Doctor. Kim Talbear said that queer people build alternative kinship structures. And so we do have these alternative kinship structures because a lot of us have lost our kinship of birth, unfortunately. And so I have often described to straight people that gay clubs and gay bars offer a fundamentally different experience for queer people than (laughs) for straight people. So when straight people go to a club, They typically go with two or three of their friends and they go to dance and they go to maybe meet people, but they don't typically go to the club with the expectation 
that they're going to know other people. Whereas with queer people, when we go out to a club or a bar, if it is a queer club, a queer night, a queer bar, I never went to a club night that I knew less than a dozen people at. Wow. (laughs) The question was never whether or not I would know people there. The question Mm -hmm. was which people I know would be there. And sometimes I would go out to a club night and I would know five dozen people there. No way. (laughs) Of the same people who were going back week after week after week to this place that I would often describe as being very church-like for us in that it provided that community. It provided that weekly outlet, that weekly place where we could Mm. be completely ourselves. So when I was still in the closet, I would go to queer clubs and dress in feminine clothing. Mm -hmm. And that was my only outlet for a long, long time. Wow. And if I didn't get that on a given week, mm-hmm. it was it was brutal. Mm. It just it definitely made a difference in my mental health, wow. whether or not I had access to that. And right now, a lot of queer people don't have access to that outlet. And that hurts a lot of queer people. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, because so many of those places are for-profit businesses, technically. Mm-hmm. Even if they are there to serve the community at the same time as being for profit, a lot of them are suddenly finding themselves clo- closing down. So yeah. one of the oldest gay bars in San Francisco, the Stud, the Stud mm-hmm. right, over on Folsom, they just closed down after decades and decades of operation by and for gay men. Yeah. And losing something like that is hard. And so we are going to keep seeing these historic clubs and bars closing down. And that's going to be a lasting impact upon the various LGBT communities. There are a lot of people who are doing events online, Mm -hmm. but the reality is it's not the same when you're not able to hoot and holler and make that big noise that both the audience and the performers are feeding off of back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about that parallel with church, right? Here in the Bay Area, we had Harvey, Harvey Milk and actually several other organizers and activists that were so critical for gay rights to really come to the public and become something people were, one, aware of, and two, you know, actually had changes in our laws because of that activism. To layer on top of, on top of layers in this 2020 dystopia, you know, we're also nine days into Oakland's protests for Black Lives Matter after the lynching of George Floyd. And I, I saw, I think I saw like one, one article pop up about this. I, I feel like there's a lot of shared history between queer rights and activists for Black folks and civil rights. Oakland and Berkeley are sort of like the place for, you know, we had uh, Black Panther here. Um, We had, you know, Harvey Milk. There's something in that parallel, that intersection Mm -hmm. in Black Lives Matter and civil rights and... You know, gay marriage and all that stuff, and and actually, um, you know, one of the things we haven't even touched on yet. I'm sure we'll we'll touch on some more. Which, by the way, listeners, you're going to be hearing a lot more of Alexis because, mm-hmm. ta-da, she's going to be our co-host. Woohoo! <laughs> if you haven't checked out Alexis on Medium, go check her out right now. Pause the podcast. Go check out her writing on Medium. She's written so much about Alexis dot L dot Crone. Alexis.l.kron. 
Yep. And the L there is, is in my middle name, Lydia. Lydia. I didn't Which know that. Which my mom helped me pick. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. Lydia. That's nice. Huh. Go check it out. You recently wrote an article of like... On my Patreon, I jokingly referred to it tongue-in-cheek as, I write about queer shit. And right now, I was going to write about more queer shit this week, but I just couldn't, not with everything going on. And so I wrote an article that just was about how Black Lives Matter. And what I'm seeing, a lot, a lot, a lot of my queer friends are really standing as best they can in solidarity with Black lives. They are really trying to go out and be on the front lines of these protests and put their white bodies between police and Black bodies. And it's so important because, you know, so many of us are reminding each other right now, Stonewall was a riot. We did not get rights magically. Pride did not just magically appear one day. It was in honor of a riot started by Marsha P. Johnson, a black woman. And so we really owe it a lot of our advances in rights to people who were on the intersection of these identities. Yeah. And so we're really striving to step up and contribute as communities to this effort because we know, frankly, we didn't get rights unless we gave riots that's continuing to be true. How many times have we seen civil rights for anybody put off because we're just going to deal with the community first? We've seen so many hollow promises mm-hmm. and so many you know, thoughts and prayers. And unless we demand more than that, we're not going to get it. Yeah. And queer people know that just as much as Black people do, that we're not going to get these rights unless we demand them. And we demand them through action. Yeah. And so like one of the things I wrote about on my blog was just, I was supposed to get prescriptions on Monday and CVS was boarded up because the protests had destroyed some property downtown. And you know what? I'm not even mad about that. What I'm mad about is that the protests are necessary. I am fucking livid that these things are still happening in our country, that black lives are still being ended by murderous, barbaric police. And until that stops, I'm okay with a little bit of inconvenience. I'm okay with having to wait a little time for my prescriptions. My convenience, my comfort is not worth more than black lives. Yeah. Hell yeah, Alexis. In this last section, we sort of ask folks to give us shout outs on what you're working on. What are your calls for action? Is there a project you're working on or someone you want to thank? So I am continuing to work on the Unconscious Bias Project, obviously. And that's super exciting, whether it's podcast or blog. I also do have my blog where I write about queer shit over at Medium at alexis.l.crone. I've also got a Patreon, if anyone wants to throw me a buck. And also, I've been helping out a friend, for instance, with the project that they're starting called Basket, Mm B-A-S-K-I-T, that is working on food delivery of fresh produce on a weekly slash bi-weekly basis, where it's a pay-what-you-can service. So people who have more should hopefully be subsidizing. So people who have more will be subsidizing people who have less by paying more so that other people can get potentially 
completely free, no charge produce. I've been working on with them to develop some equity goals because we want to make sure that we are not just white people with privilege and wealth helping other white people without wealth because that is just continuing to support systems of white supremacy where white people have access. And so we're really actively trying to do some outreach to make sure that we are reaching multiple communities, not just our own. And so if anyone wants to reach out to me and ping me, I'd also be happy to, if you have any leads on partnerships, or if you'd like to partner with us. Awesome. So thank you so much, Alexis. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I am thrilled to have you as my buddy in this podcasting adventure. So today we chatted a little bit about Alexis's journey from Boston through transition to the Bay Area, out of education, into diversity, equity, and inclusion realm. We haven't yet talked about fire spinning. I'm sure it'll come up in our future podcasts. Talked a little bit about coronavirus and how it's affecting queer folks and trans folks, especially that have healthcare needs. We also talked about the intersection, yeah, really the intertwined history of Black and queer civil rights and how important it is for all of us and in, in any different you know identities we have to really come together and support the Black Lives Matters movement right now. It is so critical and, and, and I am with you in being absolutely angry and livid that this is this is still this is still a problem that we haven't had change and so let's uh let's make change together right mm-hmm. yeah absolutely thanks for listening you can find more information and donate at unconsciousbiasproject.org dr lynette mara she her and alexis crone she her are your hosts Seth Beckman, he, him, and Alexis Crone are your editing team. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us. We can be found on Facebook at Unconscious Bias Project, Twitter at UBP underscore STEM, LinkedIn, Instagram, or join our mailing list. UBP is a physically sponsored project of Social Good Fund, a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you wish to sponsor us, please contact us in the Contact Us tab at unconsciousbiasproject.org.